Amen. Well, thanks, Malia, for leading us in worship. I think it's so cool that uh, we're worshiping together as part of this Bible study. Uh, to me, these these mini communities that we have at, at Redemption uh, are, in in a way, mini churches. Uh, functions like a, a smaller version of what the larger body does. And so to have uh, worship as a part of that is a big deal. And so thanks, Malia, for leading us in, in worship. Uh, so we are on week two of our study, and uh, we're looking today at Je- Jesus and the woman of Nain. Uh, and that is... Uh, a follow-up story to what we did last week. Last week we looked at Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law. And so if you missed Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law, check that out on the podcast at a later time. Uh, but we are in Luke 7 today, so you can ch- turn in your Bibles uh, in Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. And part of what we're looking at here as Jesus interacts with women in the the gospel accounts is that Jesus has a better understanding of identity and calling than we do. And so he knows us better than we know ourselves. He understands who we are better than we understand who we are. And he knows our our calling uh, better than we know. And so as we see these interactions, we're looking at how Jesus has the authority over our lives and the compassion for our lives, and then he speaks into our identity and our calling in a way that is super exciting. So today we're looking at Jesus and the woman of Nain, and uh, this is in Luke chapter 7, verse, starting in verse 11. Soon after, anytime you see soon after, you have to figure out what happened before. Uh, just before Jesus had healed the centurion's son. And so he's already displaying, again, his miraculous power, his authority that he has over both the spiritual and the physical, and he's showing compassion for people where, uh, where he travels. So soon after this healing, he went to a town called Nain, uh, just a quick note about Nain. Nain was a smaller town, wasn't somewhere where Jesus went often. And so Nain is uh, sort of a little bit off the beaten path in the sense that he wouldn't have had much reason to go to Nain uh, other than that he is fulfilling who he is and what his mission is. And so that what that is is that he's going out of his way to be exactly in the right place at the right time, which Jesus is really good at. Uh, He knows exactly where he's supposed to be, when he's supposed to be there. And he knows the right timing too, which is why we have so many times that he says, it's not yet my time. It's not yet come. My hour is not yet here. He's exactly on schedule. And so Jesus has come to the town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now other, other translations say many of his disciples went with him. Uh, the, the reason that this is significant, that there's a crowd that's following him at this point, is because you remember he starts with just a few. He starts with just the 12, and he's actually avoiding crowds as much as pa- possible on the way. Uh, because he knows that his time is coming at a certain time, he's not looking to get too many crowds coming all at once. And we mentioned this last week as well. Uh, but by this point, there are his disciples following him, And that number is probably larger than 12 now. And there's a great crowd that's coming with him. So he's getting notoriety as 
this healer, this person who has authority in his teaching and also in his actions. And so there's crowd is coming with him. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carrying, carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. I want to point out just a few things about this. One is that uh, she has already experienced loss to this point. And this is just the latest in a string of losses. Uh, The reason that this is significant to me is because many of us deal with what is called complex grief. That we're not just dealing with one loss at a time but we're, we're, we're dealing with multiple losses. Uh, one of my uh, longtime mentors is a guy named William Locke. And uh, William Locke is a professor in Southern California. He was my voice teacher initially, uh, and now he's become more of like an adopted father or grandfather to me. Uh, William went through a period of time where he uh, lost relationships with some of those who he was close to, and his wife passed away, and he lost uh, the ability to have his full-time teaching position, and it was all together at the same time. And so he went through what was called complex grief. And many of us actually go through this kind of a thing on a regular basis, but it can be amplified in specific places at specific times. For this woman, she was dealing with complex grief. She was already a widow, uh, which would have meant that her source of financial stability, her, her source of uh, security, her source of companionship, much of that would have already started to go away. The good news for her was that she had a son And in the culture at the time, the son was the one who would then uh, take care of the mother. The son was the one who would then uh, mark that there was going to be stability and financial security going into the future. Because the father's inheritance would go to the son. And so the, the woman would then at least be taken care of by her son. Well, this is her only son, and her only son has died. And so what this marked for her was complex grief. She's dealing with many losses at once. But it also is indicating to her that her whole system of security is now, is now gone. Uh, and oftentimes what would happen to widows in a situation like this is that widows would then become homeless. Widows would then become uh, destitute. Uh, would, would then become uh, sort of the... the, the, the the person who needs to be taken care of by their city. And this is a small city, Nain, and this woman would then have to have been taken care of by her city. It's actually one of the reasons that the, the scriptures encourage churches to take care of widows is because this thing is not secluded just to this time period, but can often happen in the modern day as well, although it looks different for us now. So churches are encouraged to take care of widows for this very reason. So the woman of Nain has complex grief with multiple losses, has now lost her sort of last hope of of the security that she would like to see in her life. And there is a funeral procession coming out of the city gates and Jesus and his crowd coming too. 
the city gates. And this picture, if you can imagine it, of tons of people coming together from two different sides to witness this power and compassion of Jesus uh, it, off the beaten path. It's a beautiful picture. Again, Jesus knows exactly where he needs to be right when he needs to be there uh, so that he can uh, fulfill the purposes that the Father entrusts to, to him. So verse uh, 13. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Uh, again, and I'll just note too, by the way, I think it's funny, not funny, I think it's interesting that this is her only son. Because I think to myself of the, the only son has come out and is carried out to meet God's only son, Jesus, which I think is a really cool parallel as well. So Jesus, again, is going to show his compassion as soon as he gets there. And he has compassion on her and he says, do not weep. Now, I can tell you that there have been times in my life with people in my life, and one of them may even be in this room, where I have said, don't cry. And it hasn't come off as being particularly compassionate. Am I right? Maybe. Okay. So I'm amazed actually here that Jesus had compassion on her and was able to say, don't cry in a way that was compassionate. Because it's actually challenging. It is a hard thing to do. And, and, and he did it in such a way that, that because he had compassion and she knew that he had compassion on her, and it was real compassion, it wasn't fake compassion, it wasn't made up compassion, it was real compassion, don't cry came across compassionately. And I love that about Jesus, that he is able in so many situations to speak truth and love. He's able to uh, calm, be a calming presence when he's needed to be a calming presence. And there's other times that he can be a disruptive presence as well. Uh, but Jesus is able to say, compassionately don't cry, don't weep. And he does it as one again, because he has the authority and the compassion for his creation. Then, verse 14, he came up and he touched the beer and the bearers stood still. The, the beer was like a coffin, was like a, uh, something that would have been carrying out the son that had died. And it would have been very irregular for some, a stranger to come and interrupt a procession like this and even touch uh, the, the coffin or the beer. Uh, that would have been a, a very awkward, off-putting sort of thing. But again, because Jesus is full of compassion, he gets away with it. Uh, because he is God, he gets away with it. Uh, he, there are things that Jesus can do that nobody else ever would be able to pull off. It's just fascinating. And that, that he so well knows the people that he has created that he doesn't need to abide by the rules that we have created. And I'm so thankful for that as well. So the bearers stood still, mainly because they're saying, can you believe he just did that? And they want to see what happens next. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Uh, or other translations say, get up. Uh, again, speaks as one who has authority and compassion. And the reason he's able to say that is because, again, his word creates life. His word creates reality. So when Jesus commands, 
get up, the creation responds by getting up. And the dead man sat up, verse 15, and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, I love this, this story for multiple, multiple reasons, but one of the things that I just want to point out for us this morning is that this is sort of the archetype of every believer, that we have died in our sin, that we have uh, endured loss, that we are, uh, like for the, both the son and for the mother, the mother is in a situation where she has no further hope here because of her complex grief and her sustained losses, and we're destitute in need of a savior. And Jesus comes, and in his authority and his compassion, he takes us from death to life. He takes us from hopeless to hopeful. He takes us from a situation where uh, we have nothing to rely on any longer to where we rely solely on him. And each one of us as believers does take this journey with Jesus. We... I don't know anybody in this room that has been brought back to life physically, but we've been brought back to life spiritually. And as we know, there's a connection there. We talked about last week. There's a connection between the physical and the spiritual to Jesus. He doesn't see it as divided in the same way that we do. So for us that have been made alive again, and it's why... It's, it's why we read this, this passage in, in Ephesians. For those of us that have been made alive again in Christ, there's an indication that he has raised us from the dead, just like he did this boy. And that may be spiritually currently, but one day that will be physically as well. So what he is able to do here with the boy, he is able to do with us uh, for all eternity. To raise us to life in a way that we will not die again. And he gives back the boy to the mother. And I love this imagery too. That what she has lost, Jesus gives back to her. Now there may be some things that you will lose in this life that Jesus will not immediately give back to you. And we need to understand that. But there is a teaching in the book of Revelation that one day there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears. And that the things that we have lost in this world, Jesus will hand back. In other words, Jesus will make it so that anything that was ever worth having, we still will have for eternity with him. Woo! Imagine that. And he'll do it in such a way that anything that was sorrowful to us before will not be sorrowful to us then. And I'm blown away by the the God of the universe who's able to do that. Because I remember things from when I was six. I remember things from when I was 16. I remember things from when I was 26 that are still sorrowful to me today. And if you're like me, you probably do too. But there will come a day where Jesus will, the fullness of his presence and being with him and with his bride for the rest of eternity will be so joyful that there will be no more pain or no more sorrow. So I love this imagery of Jesus handing back the son to the woman. It's as if 
Though she has sustained great loss, he is giving back to her the hope and the faith and the joy that she can have in this life. Verse uh, 16, fear seized them all. (laughs) Which I imagine would be true, right? Dead man wakes up again, starts talking. Fear seized them all. Again, here's a place where, where, where fear is probably more spoken of as a good thing than as a, than as a negative thing. There may have been some fear at the, wow, that dead person is now talking again. But maybe more fear at the fact that who is this that's able to bring the dead to life? Fear, I think, oftentimes we think of as a negative, but the the biblical idea of fear is actually a positive thing. That there are things that that we need to be in awe of. There are things that we need to hold in reverence. There are things that we need to be aware of that are bigger than us. Uh, We, you know, Liz and I are trying to just help Dallas understand that you don't just run out into the street and that there is a healthy fear for not just running out into the street because of what's there that's bigger than you. I think there's a fear here that the Bible teaches that is a positive fear, if that makes sense. And there's negative fears as well, but we could talk about that another time. So fear seized them, and they glorified God. In other words, this fear led to worship. This fear led to lifting up of who Jesus was. And and that, after all, is what life is about. That we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That these things that we face turn into worship of the Lord. Regardless of what it is that we're facing, regardless of what it is that we have lost, regardless of what we've gotten back and what we haven't, that these things and these experiences, because of who Jesus is, result in the worship of Him anyway which I'm super thankful for also. So they glorified God and they said, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Now, it's awesome that they're saying that he's a prophet, but we know that he's not just that. But they're getting closer, right? <laughs> We're glorifying him. At, le- at least we know that, that, that he is speaking the truth and that he's come to us in a prophetic way. The second phrase there is probably... More helpful at this time, God has visited his people. At that point, many of them had no doubt in their mind that this was fully God, fully man. Divine and human in the person of Jesus. And that God had come to them. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So again, his, his fame is starting to grow here. But again, only in the timing that Jesus intends. Uh, In a couple of weeks, not this Sunday, but the one after, Frank and I are preaching together on a Sunday uh, in John John chapter 7. And there's a similar thing that's happening there where where Jesus uh, knows exactly what his time is. And there are people who want to come arrest him. Um, But God actually keeps them, keeps their hands still. Either way you look at this, God knows the timing exactly that these things need to happen. And he knows that not just for the woman of Nain, but he knows that for us too. He knows exactly the timing of when we need what we need and where we need it. Which is a comforting 
thought for me, uh, even today. At this time, I'd like to in, invite Allison, if she would come up, and she's, she has a little bit of application for us. This will be a challenge, because <clears throat> you know I like to talk with my hands. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll try to make this work. Um, so, good morning. Um, I have, you'll see on the application, um, I had a couple of thoughts, and I'm going to unpack them for you, so please um, bear with me, because I've had a lot longer to go over this, so the Lord has really, um, really just brought some things to mind that really apply to our present context um, and the culture we're in today. But I wanted to start with the reminder of how Luke even opened his gospel with verse 4, where he said he wrote these things that we may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught and I love that from the very beginning, Luke is telling you, this is so that what you believe you can have confidence in. These things that you're told are not just nice Sunday school stories and cute analogies. Instead, they are certainty. They are absolute truth. That word certainty was full assurance. So he is telling them these things are true. And you'll find if you take some time to read Luke which I would encourage you to do on the days in between, um, just start at the beginning and go through. A lot of the things that Luke will bring up were very, very public. Um, just like Tyler brought up, I mean, he had this group following him because he had just uh, raised the centurion son, or healed the servant of the centurion. He's doing these very public things. Uh, he had a crowd coming, and then there's a huge crowd coming out also. So a lot of what he did was very, very visible, very verifiable. And Luke does that because he wants people to know that this is not just some story that a few people have made up to gain power in a following. Um, and I want us to keep that in mind because when we read things that rub, we want that rub to push us towards certainty in who Jesus is. And so I'm going to focus on about Jesus being fully human and fully divine. Because uh, whether or not we are aware of it, that is something that is attacked often in the church. We want to downplay the divinity and just highlight, well, he was a human, he was just getting better and therefore we can get better. Or we want to separate him out as something that's just otherworldly, just do some magic, give me a few of your miracles. But instead, what Christ was was fully human and fully divine and he came and interacted with us because it's what we needed. So I'm going to um, slow down and really dig into these two aspects of it and about that certainty that we have. So I want us to think first about the raising of the son and where they said he was a great prophet. Um, because in their context, they would have been very much aware of the Old Testament scriptures. That, that's all they had for a Bible. They didn't have um, the New Testament. And there's a story of another widow whose son died and was raised, and that's Elijah, and that is in 1 Kings 17. I won't make you turn there, but if you want to, you can. And 1 Kings 17, starting in 17, verse 17, we learn about this son becoming ill, and then he dies. There's no breath left in him. And the woman says, why are you here? What have you done to me? And I can imagine that this widow, lost husband, lost son, and now is very publicly grieving 
in the back of our mind is, what is God doing to me, right? That's something we naturally do when we go through difficulty. But Elijah goes up and he asks the Lord to bring life back to this man. Now, he can't just do what Jesus does and say, hey, get up. He goes through a different process. But we see in verse 22 of 1 Kings 17 that the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he was revived. And the woman, the way she responds is very similar to the people. She says, now I know you are a man of God. By the way, she'd already gone through several years of him making sure she had food that was miraculously, her jar never ran out, her flour never ran out. But now, now that her son's back to life, she says, now I know you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. So Elijah was a huge figure in the um, promise of the coming Messiah. So anyone in that time would have been looking for Elijah. And I want to just take a second for you and unpack why, because we kind of miss this. We have had the Savior come. We're looking forward to his second coming. But they were waiting. They were waiting for what they called the hope of Israel. Elijah's mission was going to be bringing reconciliation. And he, as someone who was involved in the resurrection of the dead, he was a forerunner to Christ. And they saw this hope for resurrection to be a sign of the end being near, the end of what they were in because the Messiah was coming back. Um, I was reading in some Jewish literature that they knew that when Elijah came, the Messiah could not be very far behind. And if you're familiar with the Passover feast at all, one of the things they do is they have an empty seat for Elijah and they have the little kids go look and say, is Elijah here yet? Because it was a waiting, it was an expectation. It's like, when, when do we get to go to the promised land? When do we have the Messiah come that's going to bring an end to the difficulty? So imagine when this fear seizes them in Luke, and they say a great prophet is among us. It's because they think, oh, it's happening, right? We're getting to that end. And they would be very, very excited about that, but also fearful. Now, if, if you started at the beginning of Luke, at the beginning of Luke, um, he reminds us in, verses one, in chapter 1, 16 to 17, that John the Baptist was the one that was coming in the power of Elijah to turn people's hearts and make them prepared. So they maybe hadn't heard of John the Baptist, that's possible. But regardless, what they're looking for is who's that one that's gonna tell us the Messiah is coming. And so when they see Jesus do something, they're like, is this the one? Is he pointing to us? They, they, are, they are really getting interested in what's happening. But this is what it made me think about is do I sometimes miss the signs of the times, what's going on, because I'm filled with just human fear? Or does it increase my desire to bring glory to God because I see him moving? Because there are two kinds of fear, just like Tyler was saying. I have a fear that shuts me down, causes me to withdraw, and want to be safe. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. It's seeing things happen in our lives and pointing us more towards Jesus. So I want us to recognize that when we see things happen in our life that are out of our control, when we're like that widow who feels like we have a huge loss, that we turn not in fear of man, but that we also, like the psalmist say, what is man? What can he do to me? All right, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
So I want to remember to glorify God in things that cause me a lot of fear. But secondly, his humanity was very much displayed in that compassion that he felt. He, has, he shows his power and authority over all creation. You're not about ready to raise anyone physically from the dead. But you, like Christ, can be filled with his compassion for others. And I was hit with these aspects that he sees her. We don't want to pass over that word. There was a crowd. There's a lot going on. And yet what it does, says is he sees her, right? Most people were probably focused on the funeral and the dead man being carried out. But he sees her. He has compassion on her. The characteristic of this authority that God has over all creation is compassion. He sees and then he is moved. He's moved to act. And I want us to reflect on how we too can be moved to act. We are women who have been restored if Christ has made us alive. I love that you had us read um, Ephesians 2 because that is an area that I was going to quite a bit in this. A little bit farther on what we read right after 10 is uh, verse 11 and 12. And Ephesians 2.12 tells us to remember that we were at once separated from Christ. We were alienated strangers. We had no hope. And we were without God. That's a picture of being dead. But that's also what we have to keep in mind as women who have now been alive in Christ when we see the brokenness in the world around us and people that are broken. We should be moved by his grace to have compassion for others, not judgment about what they're doing wrong. And we need to act by walking in the light of his forgiveness, his grace, his truth. We have his love And a result of that is restoring of a relationship. We are already restored with God when he has given us his spirit and he's made us alive in him. But he's called us to love him so that we also love others that way. And I was really, really moved this week to think about how many times I just become offended or easily frustrated by other believers and non-believers. And I don't see them as needing God's compassion And so I don't move towards them. I read a a quote from a book I'm reading right now that's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. It's by Thaddeus Williams. He's a professor at Talbot Seminary. And he talks about that there's a lot of things that are very worthy causes, but they're terrible gods. And when we put our hope in these causes, we're not living out what the gospel has called us to. And we are not glorifying him. And he says, we are called to live out the reality of the kingdom through acts of justice and mercy. This saves us from complacency and inaction while discouraging naive hopes that ultimately will lead to despair. My encouragement to you as you apply this is to think about what it would like, be like to live in the reality of the kingdom, what it would be like to look at other people with compassion and move towards them, What would it look like to actually believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain and that you've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you who are living but Christ within you? So I hope that helps. Pardon me? Oh, Um, confronting injustice without compromising truth. Thanks, Allison. I always appreciate hearing Allison share. Um, 
Let me pray for us, and then would like to give an opportunity for discussion around the tables. Um, there are some facilitating questions there, that, but those are mainly just a get-you-started kind of thing. So I said last week that some of the best conversation happens when you go off script, off script. So don't feel like you have to stick to those questions if you get into something that is particularly meaningful at the table. Uh, but that's a way to get you started on some of these ideas uh, at a, each of your tables. So I'll pray for us. Uh, then I'd love for you to uh, spend, we'll, we'll spend probably about 10 or 15 minutes um, in discussion at the tables. And at the end, uh, we'll spend some time in prayer. Uh, let me pray for the, the end of this teaching time. God, we do praise you that you have made us alive in you. Uh, we ask for you, that your help, for the help of the Spirit in dying to ourselves, that we might truly live uh, the life that you have called us to live as those who have been made alive in you, but it's no longer we who live, but you who live through us. God, would you live through us today? as we seek to follow you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with our minds, our, our strength. Would you be glorified in us, your church? And Lord, I pray that you would also bless this time of discussion and prayer. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.